Good evening. The Senate falls short of passing an abortion bill despite the measure getting 51 votes. A report details the oppression of Indian children at boarding schools run by the federal government for 150 years, but not so much on religious schools that far outnumbered the federally funded ones. A world-renowned Palestinian journalist is shot dead by a sniper on the West Bank. Can Israeli investigations be trusted? A voice from Ukraine and deja vu all over again in the Philippines. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Wednesday, May 11th, 2022. A first-of-its-kind federal study of Native American boarding schools that for over a century sought to assimilate indigenous children into white society, often with terrible consequences, has identified more than 500 student deaths at the institutions, but officials say that figure could grow exponentially as research continues. The Interior Department report released today expands to 408, the number of schools that were known to have operated across the United States since 1819 and coinciding with the removal of many tribes from their ancestral lands. Interior Secretary Deb Holland, the first indigenous person to head the department, charged with Indian Affairs, choked back tears as she made the announcement today. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm honored to welcome you to the Department of the Interior, which sits on the ancestral homelands of the Anacostan and Piscataway people. As part of the Federal Indian Boarding School Initiative and in response to recommendations from the report, Today, I am launching a year-long tour, The Road to Healing. I will travel across the country to use my platform to elevate American Indian, Alaska Native, and Native Hawaiian survivors of the federal Indian boarding school system and give them the opportunity to share their stories, help connect communities with trauma-informed support, and facilitate the collection of a permanent oral history. This is one step among many that we will take. The department's work thus far shows that an all-of-government approach is necessary to strengthen and rebuild the bonds within Native communities that federal Indian boarding schools set out to break. The fact that I am standing here today as the first Indigenous Cabinet Secretary is testament to the strength and determination of Native people. I am here because my ancestors persevered. I stand on the shoulders of my grandmother and my mother, and the work we will do with the Federal Indian Boarding School Initiative will have a transformational impact on the generations who follow. I thank you all so much for being here and for covering this critical issue. And that's Interior Secretary Deb Halland. A second volume of the report will cover burial sites as well as the federal government's financial investment in the schools and the impacts of the boarding schools on indigenous communities. The Interior Department said it has so far identified at least 53 burial sites at or near boarding schools, not all of which have marked graves. Private charities, mostly Catholic and Protestant churches, operated even more schools many with federal funding. The federal government still oversees more than 180 schools in nearly two dozen states that serve Native Americans, although they're run much differently than in the past. And calls have grown for an independent and impartial investigation into the killing of veteran Al Jazeera journalist Shireen Abu Akla, who was shot dead as she covered an Israeli army raid in the occupied West Bank. Oh! 
بيك معلك تتحركيش شريف يا عمي اسحبها يا رب ولك اسحبها That was shooting after her. Uh, if you've seen the video footage, she's uh, laying prone where she had fallen after being shot through the skull. A uh, autopsy later on said that she had been shot once in the head, causing uh, immediate death. Those bullets, the sound of those bullets was actually gunfire that was preventing rescuers from getting to the site. Another journalist was shot. That was uh, Shireen's uh, producer. Her death came nearly a year after an Israeli airstrike destroyed a Gaza building that housed the offices of Al Jazeera and the news agency Associated Press. The Qatar-based TV channel said in a statement today that Abu Akhla 51 was assassinated in cold blood by the Israeli occupation forces. Another Al Jazeera journalist, producer Ali Al-Samoudi, was wounded in the incident in which both wore helmets and vests marked clearly with press. He later said no Palestinian fighters were nearby, stressing that otherwise we wouldn't have gone into the area. No exchange of fire, so there is no possibility whatsoever that a Palestinian have shot Shireen Abu Aqli. The Israeli army always uses these excuses to cover up the crimes they are committing against Palestinians, including Palestinian journalists. The editor-in-chief of Al Jazeera English is Amjad Atala. He had this to say. We do as much as we possibly can. The safety, the health and safety uh, of our journalists is, is of paramount importance to us. We, we have all the necessary protocols for providing the equipment, um, providing security, um, providing procedures, uh, safety procedures. We do everything that we can to protect our journalists, but we have to recognize that it's a dangerous world out there. And there are some state players as well as other players who do target journalists and increasingly unfortunately in this world today the media is increasingly coming under fire in all sorts of different ways um, whether it be physical attack or, or online attack or any all, all sorts of other attacks and, and intimidation and threats and as Al, as Al Jazeera and as a, along with other media we have to face this this reality this depressing reality but we cannot allow it to silence us, to stop us from doing what we do, because the world needs to know what's happening more than ever in this world. I'm Shara Tala, editor-in-chief of Al Jazeera English. The United States State Department condemned the killing as an attack on the free press, although the United States is Israel's biggest military supplier, might have even supplied the guns and bullets used to shoot Shireen. State Department spokesperson Ned Price. We send our deepest condolences to Shireen's family, her friends and loved ones, and strongly condemn her killing, as we do the killing of journalists around the world. We call for an immediate and thorough investigation and full accountability. Investigating attacks on independent media and prosecuting those responsible are of paramount importance. We will continue to promote media freedom and protect journalists' ability to do their jobs without fear of violence, threats to their lives or safety, or unjust attention. Her death is a tragic loss and an affront to media freedom everywhere. Ned Price is spokesperson for the United States State Department. Muin Rabani is co-editor of Jadalia. He's based in Oman and spoke with WBAI moments ago. He says it's hard to believe Shireen's killing wasn't a targeted hit. Shireen Abu Akhle was not just another reporter. She was a legend and an icon among Palestinians and journalists covering Palestine and Palestinian affairs. She had been the lead reporter for uh, Al Jazeera in the occupied Palestinian territories for over two decades. 
unfortunately, this is one in a series of such killings that are made possible by the continued impunity which the Israeli state and the Israeli military and its various armed forces and militias enjoy by virtue of the active support or passive acquiescence they systematically receive primarily from the United States um, and European governments. If there is not going to be any accountability in this case, if there is not going to be justice for Shireen, and what I have to point out was not just a killing in the context of an armed confrontation between Palestinians and Israelis, it was an act of calculated savagery by an Israeli sniper, a sniper who shot her through the head. That should tell you all you need to know about this crime. There's an implication there that this was a targeted killing of somebody they knew exactly who they were shooting at. That would appear to be the case. I, I think it's perhaps premature to conclude that this was a decision taken by a commander rather than a soldier. What's telling here is that the Israeli authorities immediately came out with a statement stating that there was an armed clash underway between the Israeli military and Palestinian fighters, that they were only using snipers so they could not have shot her in air because they wouldn't have targeted her, that the Palestinian Authority took the body for an autopsy and is refusing a joint investigation with the Israeli authorities. And according to the Israelis, this tells you all, need, all you need to know, she was shot and killed by the Palestinians. Well, it just so happens that a colleague of Shirin Abu Akhle's was shot and wounded in that same incident. And there were other journalists in that group as eyewitnesses. And they uniformly state there were no armed Palestinians. There was no armed clash. She was shot by an Israeli sniper, not an Israeli soldier, an Israeli sniper. What does an investigation mean to Israel? Well, Israel loves investigations because what typically happens after such incidents is that Israel announces that it's conducting a thorough and independent investigation. The world gives it a standing ovation, and it's a whitewash. In recent years, human rights organizations, including Human Rights Watch and Israeli uh, human rights organizations, and of course, Palestinian ones, have concluded with virtual unanimity that Israeli investigations cannot be trusted to find the facts because they are designed to whitewash Israeli crimes and they are designed to perpetuate Israeli impunity in its dealings with the Palestinian people. We've heard a lot about war crimes in Ukraine and I'm absolutely sure there have been, but we're not hearing the same thing here, you know, just to jump well, this in. Well, it's been ongoing for this particular occupation of the West Bank will enter its 56th year next month. One can ascribe all the powers one wants to Israel and denounce it as much as you want for its criminal conduct towards not only Palestinians and Palestinian journalists, but indeed journalists as a whole. In the past, they have used journalistic credentials for their intelligence services to carry out summary executions of housing activists and so on. All that may well be true and is true. But what's important here is to understand that Israel ultimately acts and is able to continue acting 
because it enjoys the support for such actions, whether active support, most probably in the case of the United States, or more passive acquiescence, as it tends to be the pattern from European governments. That's what it allows it to act as it does, and that is what will continue to allow it to act as it does. Moeen Rabani is co-editor of Jalalia. He's based in Oman, spoke with WBAI a few moments ago. On more or in more international news, Ferdinand Marcos Jr., the namesake son of an ousted Philippine dictator, declared victory today in this week's presidential election and faced early calls to ensure respect for human rights, the rule of law and democracy, something his father was renowned for opposing. Marcos Jr. garnered more than 31 million votes in an unofficial vote count from Monday's polls and was projected to be one of the strongest mandates for a Philippine president in decades. His vice presidential running mate, Sara Duterte, appeared to have also won by a landslide. Duterte is daughter of the outgoing president who's been criticized for his deadly drug raids his own personal war on drugs, in effect, killing thousands in the teeming slums of the former U.S. colony. Renato Reyes is chair of the Philippine social justice organization Bayan. He says Marcos Jr. represents more of the same. It's going to be a return to uh, the years, the era of the Marcos dictatorship. I think the entire campaign of the son, Bongbong Marcos, was based on uh, a return or a call uh, to return to the so-called golden years of martial law and dictatorship. Uh, the results are not really surprising since the Marcos family have been planning uh, for this day uh, for years now. Uh, they have been uh, trying to rewrite history. They have been using various social media platforms to whitewash the crimes of uh, the dictatorship. And, uh, and this is the closest they have come. Uh, to regaining uh, the presidency since they were ousted in 1986. So, yeah, um, it is uh, unacceptable for a lot of people, but the results are not really surprising considering what has been going on in the Philippines for the last six years. Yeah. What is the relation to how this election turned out to the years of Duterte? Yeah, the Marcos has uh, never had it so good until Duterte came. They were given all the opportunities. The father was given a hero's burial. It's a cemetery dedicated for supposedly heroes of uh, the Republic. The Marxists got the support of Duterte. It provided a condition, the last six years provided a favorable condition for the Marxists to win public opinion, to be able to present themselves as a viable leadership. No? And they have been able to capitalize on public disenchantment over what has happened over the last three decades. They're saying if you want real change, then you should go back to a time when there was peace, and prices were low, jobs were available. So they're presenting the achievements of the father as the basis for uh, a Marcos restoration. Social media played a big role in shaping public opinion favorable to the Marcos family. The relationship with the United States, what do you expect it'll be from here on? The United States supported the Marcos dictatorship for the longest time, from 1972 onwards. It was only in 1986 that the U.S. actually uh, let go of Marcos, and it was the U.S. which provided Marcos safe haven and allowed allowed him to leave the country and uh, evade uh, any prosecution in the Philippines. The State Department uh, today has issued a statement congratulating Marcos, and they would probably, uh, for the meantime, work with Marcos up until the time that Marcos would show 
that he's leaning more towards China, and that would create some problems between the U.S. and the Philippine government. The narcotics crackdown. The drug problem should be seen as a health issue, as a social issue, not just a matter of killing people and eliminating drug dealers. There is a pending case before the International Criminal Court hoping to make Duterte accountable for his actions over the last six years. And you're hoping that case would move forward even under a Marcos presidency, even after the Philippines withdrew its membership in the ICC. There are various groups pushing for reforms pushing for an end to uh, police brutality and the drug raids, the killings, and uh, hopefully that gains ground even under a Marcus presidency. All right, and final question, shoes. Should we expect a return of the shoe collection? It can be assumed, it can be predicted that the ostentatious lifestyle the Marcus has displayed during the heydays in the 70s, that would probably be the case also under the uh, presidency of the son of the dictator. We'll see. Definitely there will be protests. There will be resistance against the return of the Marcoses. And uh, this is not over by any means. This is like, probably how you felt when Trump was elected in the States. We were having that moment too. Probably a sense of shock. Probably a sense of a great disappointment. And uh, people are upset. It's something that we have to confront in the coming days. It's not going to be very easy. We have to brace ourselves for another six years of uh, very bad leadership here in the Philippines. Renato Reyes, he's chair of the Philippine Social Justice Organization, Bayan. He joined WBAI from Manila. The separately elected president and vice president will take office on June 30th after the results are confirmed by Congress. With a single six-year term, they are poised to lead a South Asian country in dire need of economic recovery following two years of COVID-19 outbreaks and lockdowns. They'll also inherit huge expectations for a way out of the crushing poverty and gaping inequalities, Muslim and communist insurgencies, and political divisions, which have only inflamed, only been inflamed by the turbulent presidencies of their fathers. Ferdinand Marcos Sr., you may remember, got international attention in the 1970s because of his wife, Imelda Marcos' huge shoe collection. Her stacked closets became a symbol of the big spending lifestyle of Philippines elite. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Ukraine today reported pushing back Moscow's forces in a counterattack that could shut gas flows on a route through Russian-held territory, raising the specter of an energy crisis in Europe. Ukraine's armed forces general staff says it's captured, recaptured a village on the main highway north of the second largest city of Kharkiv, about halfway to the Russian border. Today's move by Ukraine to cut off Russian gas supplies to territory held by Russian-backed separatists was the first time the conflict had directly disrupted shipments to Europe. Gas flows from Russia's export monopoly Gazprom to Europe via Ukraine fell by a quarter after Kyiv said it was forced to halt all flows from at least one route. Should the supply cut persist, it could be the most direct impact so far on European energy markets. Meanwhile, today was a beautiful spring day in Kyiv, Ukraine's capital. Once almost totally surrounded by Russian forces, those troops withdrew in recent weeks. Kyiv's residents crawled out of basements and subway stations to restart their lives in the aftermath as the war's epicenter has moved to the south and east of the country, especially near the port city of Mariupol. Maria Pesarenko is a Ukrainian journalist. She spoke with WBAI from Kyiv earlier today. 
such a pleasant spring in Kiev city where I am right now and it's really you know enjoyable to watch people sitting in cafes in the streets uh, enjoying this warm weather trying to kind of adjust to new normality of life during war but in a city which is now uh, seems to be peaceful but still you know seeing military in the streets reminds you of war just several hundred of kilometers away from Kiev. Just a few days ago was Victory Day, big parade in Moscow, uh, raising the ghosts of World War II a long time ago, the Kremlin. What were your thoughts on Victory Day? A lot of people did really have fears that Russia would do something really terrible on May 8 or May 9 or May 10, because it's... uh, such a sacred day for them and that they will try to gain some small victories on the front line to claim Mariupol is taken by Russians or whatever they could come up with. But fortunately, nothing of any fear that we used to have did really become uh, true, came true because also there were a lot of talks about possible nuclear strike or a possible chemical weapon strike or something like this really terrible. There were no news about mobilization in Russia or any news about further, you know, war or claiming war. So really nothing happened. Crazy people sitting in Kremlin, including Putin, didn't decide to do any more crazy stuff than what they are doing right now. The head of national intelligence here in the United States, Avril Haines, referred to this war as a stalemate. What's your opinion as someone there on the scene, as a journalist and a resident? It does look kind of this way because everything went not according to Russian plan from the day one of war. So we know right now, yes, about the plan that they wanted to claim Kiev is taken by Russians in two days of invasion, but they failed just from day one. The Ukrainian armed forces managed to kick out Russians out of Kiev, was based really not on our military supplies or anything, but more so on the strong morale and some small operations, you know, which are really courageous and outrageous, I would say. Anything more we should know? The main uh, story uh, which is unfolding in Ukraine right now is the Battle of Mariupol and really Azovstal is the one thing I would like to stress once again. So what we are hearing and seeing here in, on, in peaceful cities are the pictures of wounded warriors with their limbs being taken away because of heavy injuries in the shelters underneath the Azovstal plant. It's really the pictures which are now captivating all the attention of the whole Ukraine because this is where the crucial battle is going on right now. What is happening there really will define the future of this war and the future of when the peace will be in Ukraine. Maria Pisarenko. She's an independent journalist and spoke with WBAI from her home in Kiev, capital of Ukraine. Russian forces have also continued to bombard the Azovstal steelworks in the southern port of Mariupol, last bastion of Ukrainian defenders in a city now almost completely controlled by Russia after more than two months of siege. Ukraine's Azov regiment holed up inside, said Russia was bombing and trying to storm it. Ukraine was seeking to swap Russian prisoners of war with the wounded soldiers in Azovstal. If there is hell on earth, it is here, wrote an aide to Mariupol's mayor, Vadim Boychenko, who has left the city. And the United States Senate, although voting 51 to 
51 to 49 in favor of a bill that would codify abortion rights for women nationwide uh, found that they had lost because they need 60 votes to pass significant legislation under rules in the current Senate. But that didn't stop them from trying. Here was the vote earlier today. Vote. The yeas are 49. The nays are 51. Three-fifths of the senators duly chosen and sworn not having voted in the affirmative. The motion is not agreed to. Vice President Kamala Harris had this to say afterwards. I just uh, presided over the Women's Health Protective Act vote, and sadly, the Senate failed to stand in defense of a woman's right to make decisions about her own body. And let's be clear, the majority of the American people believe in defending a woman's right, her choice, to decide what happens to her own body. And this vote clearly suggests that the Senate is not where the majority of Americans are on this issue. It also makes clear that a priority for all who care about this issue, a priority should be to elect pro-choice leaders at the local, the state, and the federal level. Because what we are seeing around this country are extremist Republican leaders who are seeking to criminalize and punish women from making decisions about their own body. And that's the vice president, Kamala Harris. Closer to home, police shot and killed a man and an NYPD officer was hit in the arm during an exchange of gunfire in the Claremont section of the Bronx last night. Police Commissioner Keechan Sewell made the announcement today after the officer was released from the hospital, smiling, walking, his hand, his arm in a sling. Our two officers were patrolling in uniform in their police vehicle near 3822 3rd Avenue when they observed a male on the east sidewalk of 3rd Avenue. One officer exited the vehicle, approached the male, and he immediately began to run. The officer on foot and his partner still in the vehicle, they chased the male to the vicinity of Bathgate Avenue and Claremont Parkway. As the male continued running north on Bathgate Avenue, there was an exchange of gunfire between the officers and the suspect. During the incident, one officer was struck in the left arm and the male was struck in the head. And that is Keechan Sewell. Mayor Eric Adams has been fighting criticism of his new anti-crime unit, and I believe the officers involved in this are part of an anti-crime union that he has put onto the streets. Um, they've been making small-scale arrests of fair beaters. The mayor defended his plan today. What we're doing to stop fair invasions where people are carrying guns to stop people who are discharging weapons on our streets with no regard for the innocent people of this borough and of this city. I'm tired of the complaints about the officers who are doing their job. We put these officers on the front line. Mayor Eric Adams. And that's some of the news for Wednesday, May 11th, 2022. The news was produced by Linda Perry, our engineers, Reggie Johnson from New York City. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.